episode number five of the scoreboard podcast courtesy of marshall and ola sincere apologies we couldn't reach you last week it's uh, due to circumstances beyond our control don't uh, think because there is international break which we decided to embark on our own international break not at all i have marshall joining me on uh, this episode of the podcast and talking international break that will form the basis of our discussions on this episode of the show thanks and welcome welcome to you too marshall Thank you very much, Alalua. It's always been a pleasure anytime we get to talk sports and this is one show I wouldn't want to miss for anything in the world. All right, quick one. I said we're going to be talking about the international break and uh, we'll talk about the pros and the cons and uh, we'll also extensively talk about the controversy that was generated by the international break this just concluded international break aware fifa at some point where they were speaking from both sides of their mouth and uh, for international break a lot of managers over time they've not really been a fan of international breaks especially for the big clubs most times all of these managers do dread the international break as a matter of fact you tend to look at it especially the one that comes in September, because it comes, for example, for the Premier League, it comes after the first three match days. And uh, we'll have one each in September, October and November and one final round of international figures in March. A lot of managers have seen this as a momentum breaker. Masha, what do you say about this? Well, to be honest with you, ideally, it is a momentum breaker. But then we also feel to factor in the fact that the transfer window almost always closes just after that match day so for those who have deals to settle for those who have players to come in for those who want to take the first three days to check their squad out and see how everything goes the international break comes at a kind of perfect time for those who, whose teams are not settled but for those who have their teams settled everything going on fine they feel like it's coming at a bad time for them because they will not be able to hit uh, they will not be able to continue hitting the ground running that they've been doing. So for a team like Man United recently, who were kind of wobbly against Southampton in the draw, and then they got the one win against Wolves, were kind of scrappy. They added Ronaldo, and all of a sudden it's looking like, oh, this team can actually compete. And if Ronaldo had come in and there was no international break, no time to gel with the rest of the teammates, no time to kind of really understand how the manager gets his teams sorted, it would have been difficult to come in almost immediately. Yeah, of course, we know that for Ronaldo, he understands the team. He's, for many, the greatest to have ever done it. And for some, they pick Lenormand, but that's a discussion for another day. But you understand what I'm saying, that most players will want a little bit of time to settle down. For a player like, say, Eduardo Camavinga, for instance, who has just joined Real Madrid. Imagine joining Real Madrid in the middle of the week and then your teammates have to play a game on Saturday, it's often very, very difficult. So that international break, especially the one in September, is often kind of good because it allows new teammates or new players into a team to settle down. But for those in October and November, those are the real, real momentum stoppers. Because for teams who have gone on this good run in September and in October, looking to solidify their positions, either at the top of the table or those going for UCL sports 
or those trying to get into the Europa League or those trying to stay out of relegation, when it comes, for most of those teams, especially those in key positions, they, they always have issues because their players are often going for those breaks. That's for those in the top four or those going for the league. And those in relegation zones, their players are not. So those who are in relegation zones have to often steal over the fact that they probably had a bad game and then they cannot rep- uh, they cannot uh, change it or they cannot do something about it for the next two weeks. And, you know, at times bad feelings start to fester. And that's why you often note that when managers are to be fired, they often fired during international breaks because there's always a lot of time you think, oh God, what, what exactly can we do? Probably we'll just change managers, you know? So that's why the international break, especially for me, the one in September is kind of good because only three match days have gone and then there's always the transfer window and all of the things I mentioned. But those in October, those in November, they are the real ones that actually halt a lot of momentum for me. Now for seasons for european season it comes with a lot of expectations how do you explain that with all of those building expectations you have to just hold league matches after three match days i, I think that that's the momentum i'm talking about here and i, I want to just take it back to frank Lampard's second season in charge i think they started quite well the three the first three games were very awesome and they felt like okay with everything chelsea spent that summer they would be doing awesomely well and after the international break i think they couldn't find their reading as much as they did in the first three games i think that also contributed to everything that happened to frank Lampard. like i said with everything building up looking forward to the season alternate after three match days i think you know it, it makes it look very sad for fans of the game well that's of course different things because you know stopping for the international break is one thing keeping your momentum is another thing and i think that's where good managers come in and personally like i like i said i'm a fan of the stopping for uh, international break in september but then for managers who know their onions the international break in september is often a key time as well because the first three games it offers you the chance to gauge your team check how you're doing the players you've added those you've retained those you've been wanting to move on check them first three games see how everyone is faring see what is going on and for Frank Lampard, I feel like even if there was no international break, at some point the momentum would have been halted. Because we've seen this happen at times when a manager is just on a bad run. And even if there was a one-month gap, they wouldn't still do anything. I mean, teams in leagues like the Bundesliga or, or the French League on, where they go on one-month winter breaks. I mean, those who were in bad form at some point, they even still continue. I mean, there was a time when Sancho and Royce and Paco Alcacé were at Borussia Dortmund and they were all guns blazing. And they went into a winter break with, I think, a nine-point lead. And by the time they returned, they fell off. So we understand that taking gaps can be a bad thing for some teams. But for other teams, it can be a good thing. And that's where the strength of the manager comes in. That's where the mentality of the player comes in. And that's why when players or when teams are looking out for players, they want to sign players who have good mentality. They want to sign players who, regardless of what's going on, can find a way to focus. 
and not only for the players but also for the managers and yeah for fans of the game they don't see their favorite teams play but then they see international teams play it's the managers really who suffer from this because the players would still be playing i mean that's their job when we go for international breaks we are not watching cartoon characters we're watching decent players during these international breaks by their trade for their countries it is the managers who now have to ensure that those who are remaining work on the team's uh, tactics, try new things in training, check how they can merge the things they've learned from the first three games, watch other teams who have played, the things they would like to add to their own uh, club sides and a host of other things. That's why, like I said, the, the real buffer comes when the season is getting to match the 10, or match the 14 and then we're starting to see teams lagging because that break is not one they expected and that break is is coming at, at a kind of bad time imagine going on a six game winning run and then the international break hits you it's often very very difficult to get that synergy that momentum that comes from winning every saturday or winning every weekend because of that two week lag so that one is the first three games for me is often a fill out especially because it comes at the start of the season everyone is still jolly and fresh you know those who are new to the league are still doing well those who are just coming into the team are still getting their feet wet so it's still kind of in the continuation of kind of like pre-season but then when the games start to come thick and fast and then the season starts to hit the quarter point that's when i think the international break really comes as a big momentum stopper. Well, as much as I, I wouldn't like to agree with you on that, especially with the with you saying that it is some sort of pre-season. Well, I think if you don't take early season periods serious, I wonder what exactly you would want to take serious, Marshall. And another thing, we should factor in injuries too. There's this theory that we have a lot of injuries during international breaks would it be poor handling from the part of the national team doctors or physiotherapists or whatever you want to put at it or the players being so used to uh, the, the the climate and the whole condition at their clubs and which they don't get with the international team because we see most of these international teams apart from maybe the three lions they really don't have a base like that some of them use hotels and all of that and most of these hotels don't even have the facilities, the, the half of the facilities they use are their clubs. Yeah, that's also a problem and that's one thing that has led to different teams establishing one sort of a quasi base and also for teams, for national teams, to establish close to a stadium that has nearly all of the facilities. And that's also one good reason why it is to have a solid league, because if there is a solid league, then it's kind of easier to have a base. It's easier to have a, a national stadium. It's easier to have some of these qualities around. I mean, look at a team like Nigeria, for instance, whenever there's an international break, players meet up in different venues, use different training grounds. But if it is uh, a team like Spain, although they don't have a national base, there are several quality stadia, several quality facilities around the nation where they can camp where they can train and everything is at top notch and also that's also that's one of the importance of having a solid 
national team backing because for england they didn't used to have a base but then when they started having a lot more backing and then who started to talk about how they wanted the national team to be a lot better than it currently was there was a lot of investment put into it and we know what they're doing over there at St. George's Park. It's a very, very wonderful uh, facility over there. And you see for French, for the French too, they have their base in Clairefontaine. The Germans also have a base of their own. The Italians used to have a base of their own, but I think they're talking about changing it or upgrading that. So that's also one to, uh, to look out for. But most of these national teams, they don't have a national stadium per se, but they have a facility where the players go to whenever there's an international break this is where they are and it, it fosters this kind of sense of belonging because if you understand that whenever there's an international break this is where we are all going to this is kind of a room for yourself this is where your own things are so it saves you time it saves you cost it saves that feeling of newness it also saves that feeling of adjusting to new surroundings because unlike when it is for a tournament where you have to go somewhere new when is the international break you go to the base where everyone has known you go to the base where oh i know this is where i can get this thing this is where i can get this thing the facility has a very very high standard which is not so dissimilar from uh, their club size and that's one thing that the top clubs or the top nations now have over other ones because for the little nations they really don't have a lot of those facilities they don't have them in a place you know where that's why you see national teams go to stay up to hotels national teams jogging along the street because there's really no base where they can get themselves ready or there is no adequate facilities to keep them up for at that time where they'll be in, in a uh, international break and like I said earlier, that's what separates the elite teams from the also runs. The elite teams have everything watered, they have everything planned, and that's why most times they tend to win big. Okay, well, I see the 10 month long club campaign is not enough or is not clearly enough. Every player, especially a top player, faces international break which sort of adds to the daunting task that is right in front of all of those players with their body being at the receiving end of this i mean during all of these breaks you see players traveling constantly and some of them for long distances for example looking at nigerian players now majority of them are based in europe and uh, you know they play a couple of games full of uh, uh, a lot of things for example the stadiums where they play in nigeria or even anywhere in africa is not even anywhere close to training ground right there in europe and they play all of these games in quick succession and have little rest for their bodies to recuperate from then they start once again competing for their clubs players also come back with less than two days before they're expected to return to the field on the weekend. I mean, some of them, they have to change time zones, covering long distances, just like I said, and this takes a toll on their bodies, especially when you look at the fact that they had to do all of this in just over two weeks. What do you say about this? And the, the players, I'm talking about fatigue right now, apart from the injuries too, some of them might just be injured during the course of the international break. Yeah, I mean, it's something that happens, it's something that has always been happening. And I think the whole, covid thing kind of made it worse because 
the international calendar missed a lot of game days so they had to compress the games that would be played into a lot more shorter calendar and that's why during international breaks we're now seeing three fixtures before it used to be two when the players would arrive camps on monday after their games on either saturday or sunday and then they play the first game on i think thursday and then the next game is played either on tuesday or on wednesday before they fly back uh, to their countries but this time around we are seeing three games being played you could see some on wednesday some on saturday then some on wednesday before they fly back uh, to their clubs and this is not only pushing fatigue it's giving it's giving the players a lot of wear and tear because ideally it's not supposed to be like this but then due to covid everything has been shifted and shifted and shifted but i feel at some point it's it's going to reduce because the international calendar would balance itself out and that would and that would reduce and also talking about uh, fatigue and having to do all of this within two weeks i mean that's what the sign up for the work of these players but it could also be their clubs bearing the bronze here because if you watched the game between Paris Saint-Germain and Clermont yesterday. The bulk of those players who did not play were from South America. A lot of them were in the stands because for those who are Argentine, they play their games, they play their game on Friday morning and then they had to take a private flight from South America to France. They got there in the late hours of Friday and they had to be in the game for Saturday afternoon, which would definitely not happen so that was why a lot of them were in the stands which affected their clubs and if you factor in the fact that for these clubs it's these are the players they pay for because national teams don't pay these these players anywhere close to how much uh, their club sides are paid them imagine if it were a major game if it was a derby if it was a title decider and then the player just came back from national team duty the night before a big game. No matter when the game is to be held, morning, afternoon, or night, he would not be in perfect condition. He would not be in tip-top condition. You have to factor in jet lag. You have to factor in fitness. And like you really mentioned at some point earlier, fatigue. So these are things that FIFA would still have to cut down on at some point because, like I said, COVID has changed the whole lot of calendars. And that's why we've seen three match days being played within the international break before it used to be two and once everything settles it will return back to two and hopefully we can get a lot more quality and we won't be seeing teams uh, going without their star players because most times it's often a choice the players have to make do i represent my country now or do i represent my club look at kyle Mbappe, for instance after the first game uh, for france in the international break he had a niggling injury and he departed camp i went back to france and he was able to be fit for the game against Clermont on Saturday. Cristiano Ronaldo left camp after the first game, I think, against Ireland. And then he was back in Manchester and he was able to play for United in the game against Newcastle. Unlike Lionel Messi or Angel Di Maria, who were for the national team still late on Friday. so And they had to play a game on Saturday. So these are things that managers of club sides would really not have to really not want to deal with because it's affecting a lot of them now apart from the normal competitions for the continental associations uh, which you know it's factored into fifa calendar don't you think we should begin to look at maybe maybe 
a separate international window which will not clash with the club season. And this way, it will be better packaged and maybe you can actually get sponsor for it and might be morning spinning too. Well, what do you think about this? A separate international window which will not at all clash with a regular season. Maybe if it takes even compressing the, uh, the season, we might just go that way. Well, that would that would be interesting because it almost then takes a tournament feel, which it will be interesting to note from FIFA's point of view, because if that were to be held, it would most likely be held during the summer. And there are two tournaments to be qualified for. That's the World Cup and the Continental Tournaments. For Africa, you're qualifying for the World Cup, you're qualifying for AFCON. For the Europeans, you're, com- you're qualifying for the Euros, you're qualifying for the World Cup. Now, both qualifiers cannot be held simultaneously, which means they have to be held in different windows. And both tournaments are often two years apart from each other. So the Euros, for instance, was held in 2016. The World Cup was held in 2018. The Euros was due to be held in 2020, although it was held earlier this year. And the World Cup is set for 2022. So that means if there's to be an international window, then it no longer that has all of the fixtures of the international break, then it no longer becomes a window, it becomes an international house or an international room, uh, if you like. And then it, it also means that it would not be held during the season, because if it's held during the season, it means the players would have to take a break away from their clubs for a length of time, which would affect the length of the season, which would also mean that the season would not end when it is supposed to end. Although that can also be said that. That's why I'm saying maybe we should have a more compressed club football calendar. Maybe not play as much as uh, 38 games for uh, some countries and the rest. But then that would that would be almost impossible because for a league season, everyone, everybody has to face each other twice, home and away. So the least you can even have is 38 for, the, for those who have 20 teams. And for those who have 18 teams, they play 34 games. What, what I'm even pos, uh, positing now is that if instead of ending the season in May-June, it would then probably have to start in August and end in March, give or take, because if we have four international breaks of two weeks each, that's two months. So if you shelve off two months of the calendar, we will then have to squeeze in at the end of the season, six weeks for international break before the players go for the summer holidays but then we also have to factor in the fact that once a player knows that the season is over he might not give as much for his country as much as he did for his club and then for players who are not being selected for the international break or for the international house which we're calling it now it gives them a longer off season so the season ends in around march and then you have to be off the you have to, you, you have a, a six or four months holiday you know between march then you have april may june july august which is about five months so it gives unfair advantages and i mean a host of a host of other things i feel like the way the international calendar is set up is good but then it does not have to be this intrusive and let's we forget there was also an international break at the end of every season but most times it's rarely talked about. 
at the end of every season, the last two weeks of June, I think, goes for international break. So that's also one to, to factor in into the international break discussion. So now that that can launch us into the, uh, the the international house or whatever you called it the other time. Since we have one just immediately after the club full season, why not just do it? Since we have it already like that, we have that format like that. Why not just extend it? Maybe instead of it being two weeks, we can just make it one month and we'll just do something with that window. And the, uh, the players can just have whatever it is they want to have at the end of the uh, entire season. So we just factor it as part of the season. Like I said, that way it can be better packaged for sponsors too. Yeah, I mean, for, for the sponsors side of it, I feel like it would also be good because it would mean you can brand it. But like I said, players have players often have issues with people cutting into their holidays or cutting into their summers and the unfair advantage too that would give because if you have 10 weeks of international football split over five stops in august in september october november march and june or august september is kind of like one so let's just call it september october november march and june 10 weeks split over those uh, five gaps of two weeks is a lot it looks now it looks shorter than 10 whole weeks straight of international football because definitely 10 we, weeks... won't, we, won't, we won't have the 10 whole weeks of international football if we are making it uh, if we are squeezing it into one we won't have the 10 whole weeks what we we'll definitely have is probably maybe because i, I feel we are making it two weeks because we are factoring in arrival and departure, arrival, recovery yeah. and departure. Yeah, yes, of course. Yes, I mean, normal that, international break now. Yeah, the, the normal international break as it stands now. Yes, and it also, thinking about it now, it also would, would help in, honestly, I, I don't, thinking about how it would help, you know, it's, it's funny because it would mean that every summer there is something going on in the international world, which would honestly be weird also because what would happen for the summers of the confederation cups or what would happen for the summer when the club world cup comes into play because according to fifa they want yes. a club world cup to come into the international calendar from i think from this summer no, not from this summer. Not from this summer. Okay. This summer is gone already. Maybe from next summer. Okay. So that that also has to be to be factored in. So there are several things that has to be factored in. Right now, the international break deserves a long deep rewind how it came to be, how the gaps were selected, how the weeks were selected, how they were ordered. But I mean we have to also know that right now it is not it is not perfect but if it were all to be squeezed into one there would be a lot of controversies a lot of controversies i think that that can that would definitely happen and since on the international break we had controversies i think uh the Italian Fantino enjoys that right now and uh, the the whole of the guys at fifa they actually enjoy that right now i'm talking controversies now because how do you explain 
yielding or bowing to pressure from international federations to say, okay, our players did not come. Help us ban our players. You banned them. But because uh, Richard Masters and Co. decided, oh, you've banned our players, we have uh, the biggest stake in this one. It is not going to be possible. And all of that, ah, FIFA were like, ah, well, this is true. We cannot ban all of those players. So they decided to backtrack again and unban all of those players. Now, this may, on the long run, put FIFA in a situation where they don't like. A situation whereby players can decide not to go for international break and still not be punished for it. Or what do you think about this? It's actually it's actually funny because for for most of these clubs, they've always had it their own way for too long. And that's why the federations are trying to get back to them. And what I feel like FIFA did was they wanted to keep being on the side of clubs because at the end of the clubs ruled game. No one really cares about the international football calendar. And FIFA knows that. So if FIFA is banning these clubs from using their own players who they pay a weekly wage for, it could cause a fight. And they don't want to have the kind of disputes or rookers that happened between UEFA and its clubs to happen with FIFA and its clubs. Now, if FIFA are going to be having the Club World Cup, trying to rival Europe's Champions League, you don't want to have the nations, you don't want to have the clubs on the other side. You want to have them on side. So if you're going to be banning them, they'll think, all right, doesn't that help you in the future? Because for the nations, the nations cannot come together and have a tournament of their own away from so uh, unfortunately you're saying the nations are helpless right now and they will be helpless perpetually that's the way it works i mean unless the nations can find a way to get patriotism from their players because these clubs generate tons of millions i mean that's why we're going to generate over a billion in revenue there is no club sorry there is no nation in the world when it comes to football, I generate anywhere, even remotely close to what these clubs generate. So if you want to pay these players for representing their own nation, how much are you going to pay them? And how often are you going to have them with you? So the balance of power is skewed. He who pays the piper, he takes the tune. If I pay this player, I should ideally dictate what I want the player to do and not do. So the balance of power has always been on the club's side. But the only thing FIFA has been trying to do is trying to give these nations a semblance of power. Now, we understand that you want to use your players. We understand that you want to help them. You want, we understand that you also want to qualify and also make mega bucks. But ideally, these players belong to the clubs. I mean, that's why they pay huge sums of transfer fees for these players. I mean, I've never heard of a nation paying a transfer for a player. If it were possible, Qatar would have paid for Messi's release clause with Argentina, <laughs> paid for Neymar's <laughs> own and Portugal's own, and who knows what the hell I, I, I think, I think that's, that's a twist. That, that's a twist. These guys should be looking at the possibility of exploring. <laughs> Make international football more exciting. <laughs> but then, if you if that were to be, to happen, then it, it changes the whole idea of international football. Yeah, I get, I get. You understand? Just, just, so that's, that's why, just a light note there. 
Yeah, of course, of course. That's why the balance of power will always be skewed to the clubs rather than the players, uh, rather than the countries, because these clubs pay a lot of money for them. These clubs pay them a lot of money, and then the nation gets to use a developed product for nigh on free, and they still want to detect the tune. I mean, get the hell out of it. But, but when you look at it vividly, how long will this player or this country versus club row continue? Uh, and, uh, you know, before the players talk, be like, oh, People will start coming to say, oh, you're not patriotic, you're not this, you're not that, you, you should not be this. And for some players who cannot keep up, this has actually sent them to early retirement. It reminds me of Jamatic of Liverpool, who had to say, okay, I'm not playing for Cameroon again, because they couldn't just keep up with that uh, club versus country issue. Yes, and for Jamatic, the very international tournament, he decided to end his playing career was one Cameroon won. So maybe he should not have done it, or plot twist, maybe he was one even holding them back all along, but that's on the lighter note. And for, for players, it would always continue to happen, where they will have issues with their clubs and country. And like you already said, it would always raise the talk of being unpatriotic, or raise the talk of being not at the level you should be when you're playing for your club or when you're playing for your country, you know, the level's been unequal, he plays better for his club because they pay him more and he has a lot more clout or he has a lot more fans there. And for players, they also have to weigh in which one they give the bulk of their attention and energy to because at some point, you know, these clubs are still going to let them go for some for selling, for some clubs it might be uh, being uninterested, look at a player like Gareth Bale, for instance. If he had gone the dramatic way at some point, probably when Real Madrid and Wales had an issue, for instance, and then he had decided to pick club of a country. When they started having those issues, he would not have that fallback option. He would not have that football team where he has the normalcy of playing football, scoring goals, doing what he loved. But then when he was having the issues under Zinedine Zidane's stewardship of Real Madrid, he was able to fall back to Wales score goals, feel like a normal footballer again. And that's where it's always interesting when these things happen. Because for most players, especially the top guys, they feel like it will never happen to them where they will have to pick one over the other, where you have to say, my club or my country, you know. But then at times it happens. And like you rightly mentioned with Joe Matip, it happened for Gareth Bale. There was a time it happened and who can forget that famous banner that was on fold. That said, Wills Golf Madrid in that order. And I mean, Bill was in that order. Yeah. yeah, because of the way he felt, not even about the club, but just because of the way he felt, Wills were being nice towards him. And that's one thing that we, we would continue to see. There are times when players would be unable to give their all for their clubs and then for their countries, they're looking like a different player, probably because of the setup or because of the way they are valued in either of the spheres. So that's one thing I think would also be very, very important. And for a player like Karim Benzema, who was out of the national team setup for about five years, you know, he has quality, it's undoubted. But not playing for his national team cost him a lot of things. Who knows? If he was on that national team of 2018, he might have been a World Cup winner now. Yeah, they won the World Cup, he was not there. Other things could have happened which might have led to them not winning the World Cup. But the truth is that if he was there and they had won the World Cup, he would have 
nigh on but completed football. I mean, winning the Champions League, winning the World Cup, what's there to win anymore? So it's it's often a good thing when players are allowed to play for their clubs or play for their country. I mean, we saw what the South American players who are in the Premier League cost during the last international break, those who were arrested on the pitch, those whose clubs prevented them from leaving because if they had gone, they would have to quarantine for two weeks before returning to our club football and a host of other things. So these are some of the issues that clubs, countries, FIFA, leagues, you know, UEFA needs to help iron out because if they don't iron it out at some point, the players will have to make a choice, your club or your country. And for most of these players, due to their patriotic nature or due to their ability to always want to keep things grounded, they wouldn't want to really raise up much of a force. And we just hope that everything would be sorted. I mean, look at players like Christian Romero, Giovanni Lo Celso of Tottenham, who went to play for the game between Brazil and Argentina. And shortly after the game, or shortly after the game started, they were arrested by Brazilian authorities. And then on getting back to their clubs, they were given fines because they were not allowed to travel to South America for those games. So these are things that happen time and again. And we just hope that at some point, we won't have to deal with this club versus country rows every time. Well, another twist to this club versus country row is that some tournaments are not even sanctioned by FIFA. That's another thing. Now, this is FIFA being selected here. It reminds me of the Olympics and it reminds me of the conversation we had of this podcast, though, when we had the issue of the Super League and everything that surrounded it because some players have decided to just say, okay, I'm definitely going to be playing at the Olympics regardless, and it has cost them their status or their places in their team. Reminds me of what Mohamed Salah had to even go through too with Liverpool and not allowing him to play right there at uh, the just completed Tokyo Olympics. So that's another ballgame entirely, Masha. That's, that's also true. And like I said, these clubs think of themselves before any other person. If Salah was at the Olympics, the Olympics ended, I think, a week before the start of the Premier League season. It means he would have missed out on pre-season. He would have missed out on quality training with his teammates. And then he would have also missed out on whatever the manager was trying to imbibe in the team. Because this season is a very testimony for Liverpool. They won the league in 2019 or in 2020. They won the Champions League in 2019. But last year was a shit. Was, I mean, they were a shell of themselves for the bulk of the 2020-2021 season due to injuries, due to a host of other factors. And the one person who has been this beacon of light was Mohamed Salah. So if you're losing Salah this early in the season and he's not coming back fully fit or he's not coming back at his peak, then it begs the question, why then are we playing? Because if this is someone who has been an ever-constant for us, playing at a very, very high level, and right now he's unable to do what he should ideally be doing, for us but he's instead doing it for his country and then we have to now be the ones to bear the bronze why should the club or why should the country not bear the bronze i mean we pay him we paid for him the nation did not pay for him and it's not like it's a fifa backed tournament quote unquote so why exactly should we be the ones bearing the bronze and a lot of clubs think that way i think when when sergio ramos was still at real madrid he was saying that he wanted to play in the Olympics after playing in the Euros in 2020. So that was, of course, a very, very difficult decision to make or to take. And that's why we've seen this kind of rules happen, especially between clubs who wonder 
why their star players would want to take that kind of a risk. You look at several clubs, they've had this kind of role time and again. I mean, there was a time when Sergio Ramos was telling Real Madrid that after the Euros in 2020, he wanted to still go and play in the Olympics for uh, Spain. And of course, that was before both events were cancelled and shifted to 2021, which we actually saw a Spanish player do, Pedri, who is just 18, played, I think, 74 games for club and country last season alone. He played nearly all the games for Barcelona in the La Liga, in the Copa del Rey, in the Champions League, got to the Euros. He was an ever-present all throughout the media way to the semi-finals of the tournament. He got to the Olympics with Spain. He was an ever-present at the media way to the final. So he played all of those games. And the season started a week after. And he still started playing for Barca again. So these are things that you, you ask why exactly uh, players have to do all of this. And if he was a player who was not 18, for instance, and still had boundless energy, or it was a player like 26 or 29, I don't think you would, you'd see a club allow a player do that. I mean, you have played for the Olympics, uh, you have played for us a whole season, which we are paying you for. We've allowed you to play at the international tournament. Going to play at the Olympics in the same summer would definitely be a step too far. And that's why you're seeing these kind of things happen. Okay, uh, I think we can go on and on about this conversation, this club versus country conversation. But uh, we have to step it is. But one man, uh, he's been really philosophical and uh, I think his philosophy has really turned into another thing right now. I'm talking about Asen Wenger. Asen Wenger wants to allow players to rest and he thinks the best way to do that is to have a World Cup every two years. Now he has recruited a lot of uh, uh, former players and coaches who I would like to call influencers to push this agenda. But this agenda was not originally Asen Wenger's agenda. It started with Saudi Arabia Football Federation in May this year, pushing the agenda to FIFA, and FIFA has done a visibility test about it and everything. But Asen Wenger seems to have taken it upon himself right now to say, okay, this looks like a very good one. And uh, he puts a lot of uh, things into place, saying players should get more rest and everything. A pioneer World Cup. Personally, it has automatically removed the excitement of what we know as the World Cup for me. Marshall. Yeah, I remember I was talking about this sometime, I think the first episode or the second episode where we're talking about the biennial World Cup when I raised the fact that if we had a biennial World Cup, for instance, alternate or reality, then you had to, you had a game, you have a World Cup in 2018, and then you want to have a World Cup in 2020, but then the pandemic happened, so you have to shift the World Cup to 2021, and then you're going to have another World Cup in 2022. So in the last four years, you would have had three World Cups, just making the Champions League already, because what exactly is the garden point of having a World Cup when it's not held every four years. That's why the Olympics maintains its swath. And that's why the World Cup has always been seen as that tournament. Now, if you want to have the World Cup every four years, how exactly do you want the South Americans to handle it? How exactly do you want the Europeans to handle it? How exactly do you want Africa to handle it? Because it was this same Africa that used to have their tournaments every two years. And then you pushed them to have the World Cup, to have the African Cup of Nations every four years. So you can fit in your hastily organized club world cup 
and now you want to fit in that same World Cup every two years. So how exactly is it going to happen? We're going to have the World Cup in 2018 and 2020, and then we'll have it in 2022 and 2024. So it means that every other uh, international tournament will be held every odd year, right? Then that would also mean that we would have tournaments every summer. So players don't take the summers off anymore. Players don't have any time to themselves. They exist for our own entertainment. They exist for our own pleasure. Okay, let's go on and kill them. Because I don't understand why Asen Wenger, for a man so Leonard, is falling to the whims and caprices of these guys. Because there is no alternate reality in which it makes sense. There is no alternate reality in which it adds up. And lastly, there is no way in hell you are going to do this thing if you truly care about the players. I mean, Asen Wenger was the same one that complained about burnout. He always complained about burnout and burnout and burnout and how they're adding so many games and how they're adding so many tournaments and how they're adding this and adding that and adding that. Asen Wenger complained, literally complained about taking preseason tours to the United States and he wants... Asen Wenger that, complained about the transfer window. Like, you, you, you get it. So, I don't know how much Asen Wenger is being paid. I mean, I would love to be a fly in the wall when that conversation was being held between whoever is backing this and Asen Wenger. But trust me, a huge sum of money has entered into Asen Wenger's bank accounts. And you know, right now he's the... FIFA has given him a title, head of something, 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 football, blah, 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 blah. And head so of he has global football to, development. Exactly. So he has to try to push whatever agenda it is UEFA is, uh, FIFA is pushing. But trust me, this makes zero sense. It will not make sense to me. And I don't think it makes sense to anyone who truly loves the sports. So we really don't even need to go into details about how he intends to have the uh, international breaks, cramps into one place i think more like the suggestion we said earlier and everything we yeah. really don't need to we really don't need to go into that those details okay because it looks like a dead and arrival proposal already exactly and that's why i think for someone like Asen Wenger, he's he's selling himself cheap because i mean you're one of the most highly respected men when it comes to football matters he has always talked about a lot of things is widely seen as this global prophet i mean when we had all Talk about international windows and free transfers. We quoted as in Venga from back in 2017. So, I mean, going this low, trust me, I didn't see it coming. Unless FIFA wants every other international tournament to be suspended. But that would be a very, very big battle of attrition because Alexander Seferin has come out to say that the they should count the European and the South American. Yeah. Alexander Seferin? eventually or just overnight became the spokesperson for the south american football federation that was surreal when i saw it man yeah he, you know the thing about this is that it's all politics i mean they will also be speaking with themselves and saying look man we won't agree with this and yeah alejandro dominguez the comable president has also come out to say that they will not be in favor of a biennial world cup because they know what a biennial world cup would mean they know that it would mean that their own products will not be as catchy anymore because for the Europeans they used to be they used to be every four years and now if you're going to be having it biennially because the World Cup is now biennial it means that you're losing a bit of suave and trust me that's not what they want I mean we know how much strife and grife the, the Copa America has had for hosting tournaments literally every year for God knows what reason so having to come out and try to 
you know, talk about this is, is quite funny as far as I'm concerned. All right, let's move away from football. Let's squeeze in tennis before we leave and a bit of NFL before we leave. But for tennis, funny, very funny. Uh, battle of teenagers in the final for Raducanu, she won the trophy. And for Fernandez, she won uh, the fans to her side. Now, Raducanu, next kid on the block or a flash in the pan. Well, with the way she actually won this one, there's the tendency to call her the next kid on the block because the next kid on the block is refusing to be the next kid on the block. And that's Naomi Osaka. I mean, after Naomi Osaka won that US Open, a lot of people predicted that she would be the future of the sport. And then she went on to win the Australian Open and it was looking like, yeah, she could actually begin her own era. But then she has had a lot of issues, mental health issues, which we talked about. She has had to deal with the struggles of being seen as an elite player and expected to win nigh on every time. And for Emma Raducanu, I mean, she's just a teenager. She has the world at her feet. And let's not forget, she also faced Leila Fernandez, who is also a teenager in her own right. And I mean, both of them did very, very fantastic for themselves. Emma Raducanu literally stormed through the US Open, did not drop a single set. I mean, every time I think about it, if it was surreal, I mean, even the great players drop sets at times. I mean, uh, Novak Djokovic drops nearly every first set before he actually goes on to demolish his opponent. But Emma Raducanu just blazed through everybody, three sets, three sets, three sets. It was like they were just literally hard for the taking. And you cannot quantify what she has done. It's not like she's facing slouches either. I mean, she defeated Leila Fernandez in the final, defeated third-ranked Ayana Sabalenka in the semis. So it's not like she was just playing the odds or being lucky. I mean, you don't win all straight sets and not dropping a set on your way to winning the US freaking Open right there at the flushing middles without being actually good at what you do. So for Emma, it's a good one. And let's hope that she can keep her feet on the ground because we know she's British and we know what the British do with their talent. They really, really do hype them up. So if we're really going to keep her on her feet, we have to hope that the British don't hype her, which we know we 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 all know they won't do. I mean, the the flowers have started falling for Emma, and let's really hope that she's she's as bright as she plays because the talent is obviously there. She keeps a very, very cool head. She's very mature in the way she plays, and who knows, she could just become one of the next gen that would really stand up and be counted. Well, I feel Joanna Conta will even feel less of herself right now for someone who has uh, been the British number one. You know how they do this thing and she's not even won a Grand Slam. Well, Raducanu has broken that course, first Grand Slam for the woman since 1977. And uh, talking about British hype, I stumbled on one article this week talking about how Britain tried to poach Novak Djokovic when she was so young and i think that's uh, why he's getting all of the bashes in the media as we get in these days so what do you think <laughs> that would that would be interesting considering we actually talked about it in football where we were talking about signing players from another country and all us the, the us too tried to do something like that for osaka too yeah i mean she's 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 american japanese but then she decided to fly under the uh japanese flag and that's, I mean, we, we literally saw what they almost did with uh, Man Lamont Jacobs, the Italian sprinter at the Tokyo Olympics. He was very nearly called uh, under the American flag. So, I mean, that's what these league countries do. Thank God that football doesn't work that way. All right, quickly, let's uh, talk the NFL. Tom, Tom Brady made history when he took the field for 
Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL kickoff game, becoming the first quarterback in NFL history to start 300 regular season games. I'm talking about Tom Brady now. Let's look at him and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this time around. Will he actually do something for them again this season? Uh, well, that would be difficult because, I mean, for Brady, he's been there, done that time and again. And the last person to actually repeat as Super Bowl champs was Brady's Patriots in 0304. And so it's always very, very difficult to repeat. I mean, very, very, very difficult even. But trust me, that opening game was one of the best I've witnessed in years. I mean, Dak Prescott coming off the very, very long injury, missed about seven weeks or ten weeks, actually, of, of the season last year. And then at the start of this season, during preseason, he suffered a shoulder cough injury and was looking like how would he fare. But then three for 400 yards, three touchdowns. And if not for Mike McCarthy, the Dallas Cowboys manager being uh, unable to push for that win, they would very nearly have won right there at the Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. The game was very, very exciting one. The opening, the kickoff show by Ed Sheeran was a great one too. And Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, it was really a battle for the ages. I think that has to be really good and as Dak Prescott's best regular season game. And considering the kind of defense he faced, because Tampa Bay has had this offense and defense going for them for a very long time now. Eight or nine straight games in a row if you're counting the opening day game. Their defense has been very, very solid. Dak threw for 400 plus yards. Tom Brady threw for over 350. Had four touchdowns. His connection with Tom, uh, with uh, Rob Gronkowski, was also very, very important. With Antonio Brown, Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, all of the boys really, really came to the party for Bruce Arians and the boys. And let's just hope that the games are as exciting as they go on. I mean, this Sunday night, for instance, we're looking out for the game between Cleveland Browns and the Kansas City Chiefs, where Patrick Mahomes would go up against Baker Mayfield, that should also be a very, very exciting game. I mean, it's football season, and let's hope that it's very, very exciting. It always is. It feels very, very, very weird, as you said, it's football season, but I understand where you're coming from. Quickly, <laughs> the, <laughs> quickly the romance between the NFL and entertainment here talked about the kickoff show as being the highlight for you with Ed Sheeran. And you see, all of these uh, American celebrities, I think one of the highlights of their career has to be performing at the Super Bowl. We've seen Michael Jackson, we've seen yeah. Beyonce do that. And uh, you, you really can't separate uh, entertainment from the NFL. And uh, I, I think that is one reason why you see NFL as one of the richest sports, if not the richest sports. It is, it is the richest sport. It generates, I think, the most money of any sport. And that's weird because it's only been held in just one country, America. But then that's what the Americans do. They love their sports. They love their football. And because of the way they are able to get themselves ingratiated with fans, I mean, Super Bowl weekend is almost like a public holiday. Everyone, wherever you are, whenever the Super Bowl starts, you're glued in front of your TV. It's the most watched in America by a country mile. So for an entertainer, the fact that you're being watched by over hundreds of millions, because if you want to host a stadium tour, how many people exactly are going to be watching in the stadium max you can get probably at Wembley 90,000 or you can get at Michigan for 100,000 which is very very rare I mean nobody goes to Michigan to host the concert I mean you go to Las Vegas or Lollapalooza and then you have probably two million but then when it's the Super Bowl weekend I mean last Super Bowl we had about 115 million viewers 
from all over the world. So that kind of performance where everyone is watching, everyone knows your name, everyone talks about what you're doing. That's the kind of thing that a lot of entertainers want for their careers. I mean, how big does it get? It doesn't get bigger than Super Bowl halftime show right there in uh, the US. But well, that's about it on this episode of the Scoreboard Podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time to listen to this episode. And thanks to Masha for staying at the other side of uh, the country as uh, we did this together as always. Thank you so much, Masha. Uh, thank you very much, Alalua. And like I always say, I hope the listeners listen, enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoy talking about it. Well, we'll return again next week for another brand new episode of the show. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah.